0: When I was a kid, I vividly remember reading a book, which is talking about space. And it had a quote, space, something containing nothing and nothing containing everything. I was hooked. That book, more specifically that quote, started a lifelong fascination with space. How can nothing contain everything we know and a whole lot more that we don't know? During my childhood, space seemed to be an unattainable frontier. It was probably easier to get to the South Pole than it was to get into space. The Apollo program was a distant memory. The Mars Rover program and Elon Musk and SpaceX were decades in the future. But that's all changed. Space is the next frontier. Now it would be easier to get into space than to the South Pole. SpaceX, Blue Origin, and there's many other companies that are now in a race to get us into space. All of this has been possible because technology has finally caught up with our ambitions. But our fascination with space is also providing us another opportunity, the opportunity to better understand our own planet by using some of the same technologies we will need for space exploration. The most obvious one of this is satellites. Many people's perception of satellites is that they are only a tool for communication, but that is not true anymore. We rely on satellites far more than you think. Our guest today is Andy Coronius the CEO and managing director of the SmartSat CRC, which is the biggest space industry research collaboration in Australian history. Its aim is to develop Australia's space capability by producing the next generation of satellites. Previously, if you wanted to play in the satellite space, you needed billions of dollars. Andy and his team are trying to change that. They want to create satellite technology that can be accessed by many more people. You can find out more about them at smartsatcrc.com. Now, we recorded this interview with Andy in early 2020, right before the COVID-19 pandemic blew up. Some of Andy's comments might seem outdated. We apologize for that. Now, let's get on with the show. So, Andy, welcome to Expression Radio.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Now, you are probably not the typical person that we would bring on this podcast, but there's part of the reason why we want to talk to you. So you're part of this SmartSat CRC. Can you talk a little bit about your role in SmartSat CRC? And then we'll talk a little bit about the CRC itself as well. Certainly, certainly. And for your audience, in case they don't know
1: what a CRC is, Perhaps I could begin there to say that the CRC is the cooperative research center, it's a federal government program that provides funding to industry that get together with universities and put some money on the table to solve a large challenge. Or sees a great opportunity. So it has been running for a very long time. I believe the first one was in 1993, and there's been quite a lot of great successes through that special partnership between industry and university research. So this journey began a couple of years ago for us to actually. Bring the coalition of industry partners, of universities together, and then we went to the government to give us the funding support to match what we put on the table to actually do something big. And that is the SmartSat CSE, which is around satellite technologies, which we'll no doubt explore. My background has been as an academic, but also a consultant before that, an IT consultant. My primary area is electrical engineering and IT, but nonetheless, I I was the head of the IT and Mathematics School at the University of South Australia for around 15 years and it was the University of South Australia as well as a great South Australian company called Nova Systems that began that journey and co-led the bringing together of many, many partners in to form the CRC. I'm now the Chief Executive Officer of the SmartSat
0: CRC. How did you get involved in the satellite part of the industry, let's say?
1: Yes, as most people will tell us, everyone gets excited when they're young, they get excited about dinosaurs. But when they grow up a little bit, some of them may still stay excited with dinosaurs, but pretty much everyone is is excited about space. Mm -hmm. I'm over 60, so the Apollo mission was a fantastic initiative that it inspired everyone. So it has that magnetism that 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 area attracts it. But until recently, not many governments and less companies could actually have their own satellites. It was only mega governments, three or four governments around the world, you know, the ones that I mean, began those journeys of actually launching satellites. And now over time, More and more governments and some large companies came into it. But in order to launch a satellite and have that capability from space, you really need serious money. Even now, a satellite would cost you about half a billion dollars. A large satellite, the size of a small bus, if you like, usually that's what geostationary satellites are, that would cost you a lot of money, uh, close to half a billion dollars. But what has happened in the last few years is because of really a lot of reduction in electronics, because the computational power, and I was into the IT industry uh, for a long time, and I know the industry well, that computational power has grown a lot. Because of that, artificial intelligence has become a very big area of research. Everyone knows about AI now. Bringing all together, that together made the launching of satellites that are much, much smaller, that can do a lot more things. So we have what we call the CubeSats or the NanoSats, the very small satellites that are as big as a toaster, some of them a little bit bigger, maybe a microwave oven, that actually zoom around the Earth. They don't cost a lot of money. You can launch one of those for maybe a million dollars. Still a lot of money for some of us, but not for governments and certainly not for larger companies. So there's been a proliferation of those satellites. We are watching that as academics and researchers are watching that and we say, well, actually, that's a big opportunity. That's a big opportunity for us, a big opportunity for Australia. And that's what really brought me in with my colleagues, of course, because this is not something one person can do bring us together to actually say, let's go for something big in this area. And we thought, what better mechanism than bringing the industry together and the researchers together for us to actually build something for Australia, which, by the way, doesn't have any of the assets. Maybe one or two opto-satellites and the NBN, but they have very specific purposes. A lot of other satellites don't really exist that can make Australia I have more ability for communications and more ability for earth observation for this great country that we have. So that's what really attracted me with passion, actually, to actually say, well, yeah, this is something I can contribute as well.
0: So you've done a really good job of explaining how the dialogue of why this CRC should come about. I guess what you're saying is, if I summarize, is that there's this opportunity now for governments or industry partners to take part in the next phase of satellite technology, which is where they become a lot more amenable to people using them in different ways.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely right. In fact... It has many spillover benefits, significant benefits, because until now, we have been free riders in satellite technology. And yet satellite technology is just so important. You can't do anything without satellite technology. And I mean just about anything technological. You wake up in the morning, the first thing you do, well, even if you, before you wake up, if you're a sleepy person, you are woken up by your iPhone, right? Not the old uh, clocks, but an iPhone. Well, actually, an iPhone would not work without a satellite because the timing required and as you can see all iPhones have the same time exactly they don't miss a beat that's because all of the timing is done by satellites the weather report you get in the morning comes from satellites Japanese satellites the timing from your iPhone comes from American satellites and others but American primarily the GPS system everything you do banking you can't do electronic banking without, you can't draw money out of an ATM without satellites being involved in that process. And therefore, and let alone driverless vehicles and all the other technological things that we do, no doubt in mining and and exploration, you're using a lot of satellite technology for comms and so on. So it's critically important for us to actually have that capability
0: and I think that's a really good point that you, know, you make in that maybe the old frame of mind that a lot of people have is that satellites are this direct communication tool but there's this proliferation of passive communication between devices that now relies on satellites that maybe people might not have the same level of understanding on
1: absolutely absolutely and, and for Australia you know we have been and that's great we've been the lucky country And we have relied a lot, I would say, probably too much, on the good fortune, the lucky part of the lucky party country, which is essentially our resources. We've got a wonderful country, a big country. In fact, our seas as well as the land is one tenth of the planet. One tenth, ten percent of the planet is Australia, Australian jurisdiction. Now. So we've relied on mining. We've relied on resources like that. We've relied on agriculture. We relied on oil and gas. We really have, probably not as been as acting, active in investing, in high tech. The mining area actually is very good. About particularly in the software industry, about seventy percent of all software mining-related software are actually Australian. That is great. So mining technology is very good for Australia. And agriculture is not bad at all. But actually, in terms of high-tech, in terms of space technologies, in terms of manufacturing of smart cars, not just cars, in terms of actually building aircraft, because you know the value of an aircraft as, comp- as compared to a pushbike, the knowledge required to build an aircraft versus a pushbike, is significantly different. And by the way, we don't manufacture any push bikes either. So therefore, in order for us to transition from the lucky country into the smart country, we want to be inspired by missions such as building technologies that are, A, are very applicable to mining, to agriculture, and so on, but also they give us the opportunity to become highly technological ourselves. Instead of saying, oh yes, America, There is $300 million, give us a satellite, and that's fine. In other words, we buy technology instead of building it. Or at least adding value. You don't have to build all of it, but building some
0: part. That way we have the skin in the game kind of concept, right? Exactly.
1: We have the skin in the game. We then have the respect of the other nations. And therefore, they will invite us to the big table when all the decisions are made and so on. Because we are equal partners. If we're always giving them money and they give us kit, well, you know, we're just customers.
0: Yeah, it's a different relationship.
1: Different relationship.
0: In the lead up to this interview, you and I spoke a bit about why we're trying to get someone like yourself who sits a little bit on the periphery of, I guess, our main industry. Sure. But you know, exactly what you said right now, I think is quite important, is that... As a country, we should evolve past our dependence on primary industries to something secondary. And like you said, we've spent nearly 100 years of developing technology and know-how in a certain field, and some of that is applicable to other fields. And we should, as a country, explore those and evolve those and, and take the next step along the way. We shouldn't just be a country about digging stuff up and sending it off somewhere else. And No,
1: but you can actually do that. I'm not a proponent of saying... Oh, okay, now we'll go into high tech and forget about mining. That's a stupid thing. I think what we need to be doing is making mining cleverer. And the miners are doing that, actually. Making the technology cleverer. Making food production cleverer. You know, in agriculture, what we do is we just spray water everywhere and we hope that the plant will get some water. Well, water is a big resource in Australia that we should not be treating it with such disrespect. With actually exact agriculture and space-enabled IOT connectivity, you can actually identify the health of the plant from space, from a low Earth-orbiting satellite, and therefore you can say, this is how much water it needs, this is how much nutrient it needs, and this is how much pesticide it needs, and no more. So we don't just simply get aeroplanes, as it happens in many farmlands. You get aeroplanes and you just spray the pesticides over the crop to kill all the bugs. But of course, you kill everything else as well. It's
0: the spray and pray strategy.
1: Exactly. So it's a cleverer way to do it. And space technologies can actually do so much to help the mining industry, the oil and gas industry, do things even in more clever ways than they are doing today.
0: So you talked about the smarts at CRC. What is the overarching goal, question? What's the overarching problem do you hope to solve? Is there one? Is there many? Yeah, there
1: are many, but we would be fools to tackle them all. What we've done is we've looked at the whole value chain of space, all the way from manufacturing rockets and satellites, launching them and so on down the line. And we felt that... A little bit like playing tennis, we really cannot go and play with the best right now. Well, I couldn't, right? And many of us couldn't. You need a long time to mature that capability. So we said, okay, that knocks a few things out. And really, manufacture of serious satellite technologies probably is not something Australia will do in big scale. Because the difference between the way the Americans, the Chinese, and others are doing it, and the Europeans are doing it, is just so far ahead we would never catch up. We would need to invest a lot of money. So we thought, what are the areas where we, first of all, Australia needs this capability, and second, we have a chance of actually showing leadership and creating unique technologies, leapfrogging technologies. So we've identified three big areas. One is advanced communications, the next generation of communications, and also wrap into that connectivity. And that's what you said before around the IoT, the Internet of Things connectivity, that is taking the whole world by storm now. Pretty much every item will be tagged and every living thing will be tagged by some kind of IoT sensor in the future. How do you actually manage the comms of that? How do you know the security of it? Because it's okay to just put it on the mobile network, but is that secure? So the security aspects, the resilience aspect, particularly if you have mission-critical operations, for instance. So the communications will be an area that we will be taking to the next level. And, of course, part of communications is Throughput, it's the amounts of data, the bandwidth, as we say. How much data will flow down, the size of the pipe. Now, the size of the pipe on the ground is pretty good. You know, we've got fiber optics. There are a few issues with some aspects of that. But by and large, you can have ultra high data rates on terrestrial systems. And the mobile network is also great. Now, there's a new generation of technologies coming out, 5G. And that will give you not only big, it has uh, some really clever stuff that we could talk another time, but will give you the latency advantage, particularly for outside the cities. Because 5G would be good for the cities, bad for the country, The, the countryside, I mean, the regional areas, because you can't put that many towers everywhere. So you have to rely on something else. And that something else can be satellite technology, particularly satellite technology that goes around in low Earth orbit, because you don't have to go very far. So that's one big area. The other big area is Earth observation, remote sensing, okay? But Earth observation with not just the sensors we have now, but ultra new generation of sensors that can give you even better capability. But add to that the machine learning, neural networks, and other AI techniques that allow you to analyze that information that you're capturing in real time, initially in near real time, but actually we're moving towards real time. Because, for instance, up to now, we rely on the Sentinel and other satellites of the United States and others, and they give us the data. Well, actually, that's a problem. Sometimes they may say, well, we're not going to give it to you.
0: Yeah, 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 they might go behind a paywall or something like that. Exactly. And the world is
1: a bit uh, unpredictable these days. You don't know what countries will do. Your friends today may not be your friends tomorrow. So all of that. But more importantly, that data that we take from the existing satellites to do agriculture, to do mining and so on, and exploration is one of those, we don't control the satellite we cannot task the satellite and say you know what we'd like to use synthetic aperture radar on that area as the satellite passes over so that we can get better resolution and 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 sense more on the ground or even underground we can't do that now because we rely on something that comes to us in the mail so to speak so that's one thing that we want to change the second thing which is even more important is actually the analysis of it. What the smarts at csc will do is rather than actually now, as it happens now, take the pictures, or the sensors and the data, and you send it down, which means the more the resolution, the more data, therefore the bigger the pipe that you need and so on. Not only that, but to actually bring it down. And then what? The farmer, when they're doing precision agriculture, they don't want the data. They actually want the information. They want to know, when do I water? the miner doesn't want the data the miner or the explorer wants to say well where do i drill and do i have too many to put so many holes can i just put only a few because i know the probability is higher there they want that type of insight rather than the data what we want to do is we want to put that those ai models and capability and encode them on the platform itself on the satellite itself so that as the satellite passes over And there are some issues with that. You may need more than one satellite. You may want to actually have one satellite taking the pictures, sending the data to a satellite further behind as they're passing, do the analysis, and then perhaps increase the resolution to see more, get more data, and do that smart analysis and only send the insights down rather than sending all the data for some organization to go and analyze it. That's the type of leapfrogging and disruptive technologies that we want to build.
0: I obviously don't have a, as in-depth a background in this, but what it seems like to me is like we currently have a very manual process of doing this, particularly in as Australians, we have a manual process, and we don't control the process because the person that owns a satellite does... Yeah, If the satellite can do ten things, the person that owns it does the first nine, and then we get to do the tenth that we can slide in as much as we can. So by having our own infrastructure, so to speak, it allows us to, A, control what we do, and then you're also trying to solve the problem of doing it more in an automated sense rather than more manual sense.
1: Exactly, exactly. And the spillover effect of that, of course, is that we now have our own people developing knowledge and technology for Australia that they can export to others. So instead of paying for kit, we actually get money for selling some of that. And therefore, we are future-proofing the jobs of our youth. There are many universities, even now, that are doing, for instance, space aeronautical engineering. But most of the graduates go to Europe or to America or overseas to get jobs because there hasn't been a lot of aeronautical engineering here, unlike mining, for instance. And therefore, you say, oh, hold on a second. We are training people for other countries to build things that we're gonna buy? That doesn't make sense. We want our youth to be building and creating jobs here. And I've noticed that even now, is because we have been funded, and funded very well, the Smarts at CIC has, it's a quarter of a billion dollars R&D effort, so it's a big research effort that we, and we are now reaching out to find capability. We find that a lot of Australians expats from Europe and from America are saying, oh, have you got any jobs for us? In other words, already the industry is building a, a, a mass of activity and other people are saying, well, no, I'm going to go back to Australia. And of course, we're going to inspire the young ones to actually follow a career in science.
0: So it's part of the fundamental goal of the CRC to kind of create this generational knowledge and wealth?
1: Absolutely, exactly that, yeah. And in fact, the, the government expects us to do that. In the process of seven years, we have promised that we will train a graduate, our nearly 100 PhD graduates in this area, and that lifts the capability significantly if you did have 100 PhDs in this area, mm-hmm. and about 400 engineers in these related areas that we are working
0: in. Yeah, okay. So obviously, you, know, you are a research organization, so you are getting this funding from the government. So at some point you have to show the return on that investment. So is part of this 100 PhD, 400 engineers that return on investment?
1: That's the return on investment for our government in particular. They're very, we are keen, they are keen, but also for our companies, because although the unemployment rate may be, I don't know what it is, 5% or whatever it may be at the moment, actually to get very clever engineers and scientists, you know, the STEM areas, as we say, it's very difficult to do that. And it costs a lot to get them, right? So even our industry partners, and we've got quite a lot of industry partners, our nearly 80 industry partners, around 20 universities, even they are looking at, hey, the PhD graduates could actually come and work for us. Airbus, BAE, TALIS, they're all part of this operation, of this CRC. And therefore, they're looking at that as well. But we have more value to contribute. Our industry partners in particular, they are there because they want to improve their businesses and they want to export the technologies and commercialize the technologies. So one of our big, important, key goals is to have commercializable value, economic value for our partners and hopefully for the nation as well as as a result.
0: So, is that the role that industry plays in the CRCs? Is that they take the commercializing aspect of the technology away from largely the researchers? Because they are fundamentally two different things.
1: They're two different things. Some universities do their own commercialization, but typically what happens, universities create the knowledge, they work with industry partners to translate that knowledge to value, and then the industry partners take that and commercialize it for profit. And And I
0: think this is quite important. You You started off with the concept of CRCs, and I think this is something that's quite unique about CRCs. Like you said, there's a role for thinkers and there's a role for doers in that research project or the research organization, I should say. By figuring out what role each plays, then you you, know, you have the thinkers that come up with the ideas and refine them and get them to a minimum viable product or whatever it is, and that gets passed on to the doers that then have to do something with it and then see what happens.
1: Exactly. And actually, there is even a further step on that. The end users are also involved, and we're trying to involve our end users very closely because the end users are the people who will say, hmm, I like this, I will buy it, or no, I will reject it. And you want to know that as quickly as possible because you don't want to spend all this money and not have a product you know, that people want. So therefore, it's a feedback loop. You want to get that information back to the researchers to say, you know, this type of work is really, really good. Do more of it. Instead of doing things that are not useless because all research is useful. It's just the timing. Sometimes it may take, 30 years for someone to say oh wow that's a gem or it could come out of serendipity some of the greatest technologies like television and many others actually came as an accident not because the mathematicians and the physicists and the uh, researchers were actually saying oh we're going to sit here now and develop a tv that doesn't happen like that
0: no, that's right. And I think that's a really good point is that I think the notion seems to be that people sit around and go, we need television. So people go and build television. That's not quite how it works. It's You know, you have this mass of people doing research and then somehow the ideas collide and become a television. Yeah. And then market kind of tells you and goes, actually, well, yeah, well, that sounds like a great idea. I will take that versus that. And the other thing that you mentioned, which is I think quite really good, is the timing of it as well. The iPhone could have been developed 10 years before, but the market wasn't mature enough to actually utilize that product.
1: Or some piece of technology may not have been useful ready for it.
0: Yeah, or it would have cost like $20,000 to buy an iPhone at that time. So there is this time component where, like you know, as part of your research, you might come up with ideas that might be commercialized 25 years from now. They might just not have a market right now.
1: Exactly, exactly. But the public and the people that invest in you, they want a return. And that most people would not invest for anything if it would take longer than their life <laughs> you want to actually extract some value some people would as a contribution to society but often you don't you want return as quickly as possible so i'm not saying that all research is like that or that serendipity and somehow it finds itself in a useful product sometimes actually saying that we will build a tv can be a good thing because it focuses the energy. It's that mission thing as the Apollo 11 was what Kennedy said. By the end of the decade, we're going to have this. Well, they are great because they do focus the energy around a particular mission.
0: So you obviously head up the CRC. So is a large part of your role managing those short-term, long-term expectations and returns that people want?
1: Yes, it is very much so. We have over 100 partners and you could consider them as 100 shareholders because that's what they are and we have one extra one which is very big and that's the government so absolutely my role is very much to lead the crc to ensure that it delivers for our partners it delivers for our government which really means delivers for our nation we all want that so therefore it can't be just oh we got the money let's now spend it we have to get the money and spend it in a very wise manner, in a way that will actually add value, both commercial, social, econo- you know, the com- economic, and so on. But nonetheless, it's very much focused around what will be the utility of what we have, what lives will it say, save, what economic value will it give to the companies that have invested. The three main areas of application for us, we have a number of sectors that we're going to really focus our energy. But as I said before...
0: Like industry sectors, you mean? Industry
1: sectors, mining and agriculture, the obvious ones, the telecommunications area and so on. But the three moonshots, if you like, for us is, um, first of all, resources management, our natural resources, our environment and particularly water. So we already have began the journey around a big project called the Aqua in but in collaboration with the CSIRO, who are partners of the CRC, to actually ensure that we monitor well all of the fresh water in Australia, all of the water bodies, know the quantity of water, what comes in, what goes out, and whether that's legitimate or not, know the quality of the water so that our fish don't die, know the water's... The catchment areas that has implications for bushfires and other things, droughts. So understanding in a national at the national level and in near real time, knowing where is our water going, what is the stock of water body that we have in Australia. So that's one big shot that will moonshot that we'll be working on. The other one is disaster management. And yes, at the moment the bushfires is a very sad and large catastrophe for Australia but it's actually regular whether they are to the extent that they are now pretty much every year or every few years we have very major crisis uh, so we've undertaken to actually focus our energy on how we will help in emergency management but also the land management that goes before it in reducing the risk in pre- preventing some of the fires to the extent that we can So, we'll be applying some of the technologies towards that. And the third one, of course, is defense and national security. And our defense department through DST has invested a significant amount of money in the CRC. And, of course, that is not only for defense in terms of our military, but also national security like border protection and so on.
0: Yeah. I guess one obvious question that comes into my head when you talk about the number of partners that you have involved. Is it a good thing and a bad thing having so many people involved? Like, how do you manage competing interests from different parties?
1: I think that's a great question. And it has been asked before with a number of responses that you could give to that. We wanted to get a large number of partners because the industry, the space industry in Australia is very nascent. If you talk about the mining industry, the mining industry is significant in numbers, in in ability to actually exert influence and so on. And you know who's who in the zoo. For us, that doesn't exist for Australia. It's just started. Probably five years ago, there would have been five startups in space in Australia. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there were 10, but not many more. Now there's nearly 200. So that's building. And so one of our roles that I didn't really state it in so far is for us to help build the industry. We're not going to do it alone. In fact, the space agency and the government will have a guiding role in that. And we're working very closely with the space agency. In fact, we are co-located next door. Yes. So on the same floor. We're working very closely with the space agency and we'll be guided by them to build the industry. So therefore, we didn't want to have just a very exclusive few partners we wanted to have pretty much everyone who wanted to participate now i say that we have a lot and we do but actually about half of those that we have about 50 plus are startups and they don't pay to be in the crc they are there to get help from us so that we can build the industry okay And also for us to then have an avenue for them to commercialize. Why should we spin another company if a company is already doing this type of work and we want to help them grow? You see what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's a very uh, like democratized approach in the way you've kind of done it. It
1: is. And it's more towards building the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if you want to build an ecosystem, you don't put fences
0: around it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that obviously, I mean, you segued into the next part, which is that a large part of your work will tie into Australia building capability as as a player in the space industry. Yeah, with the agency that we have, the technology that you guys will develop. Do you care to comment why you think that's important? If you ask
1: some people, they could say to you, we have enough problems, why do you want to do space in general? Some people don't know, though, that some of the best technologies, like CAT scans and a baby formula, in fact, most of those came from missions, space missions. Yeah,
0: freeze-dried food, like all of this concept.
1: So many technologies. The glasses you wear, the anti-scratch comes from that. There's just so many different technologies that have actually come from the baby scanners, in fact. All of those have come from technology that was for another purpose. So it's very difficult to say, to put a, an ROI, a return on investment on that, because you don't know what technology will come. Not many people say, have said to me, why are you doing it? I think they can see that it's time for us now in Australia to build the capability, not only because we're going to build high tech, but because we are going to have sovereignty over our land as well. I say to people that the resolution, the technology is now such that you can read around a 30 centimeter square patch from space. In other words, you can just about put an A4 page on the ground and you can recognize it from space. Do you want 40 other countries to be doing that several times a day about your country? And you then, if you want to take a selfie of your country, you have to pay them for it. That doesn't make sense. We in Australia need to build that capability for our own. And in the process, we will build the knowledge and the technology, and therefore we'll become far greater in uh, more high tech, and therefore we will have great reliance on exports from technologies other than mining, agriculture, and so on.
0: Yeah. We talked about this in the pre-interview that, you know, we are on this podcast going to explore this concept of space resources and things like that. And I think you have to think about the way we are going as a global community is, you know, we are going to prioritize environmental preservation above anything else. So there might come a point where extracting resources from earth will have such a high premium associated with it because of the environmental cost that we will probably look at other ways like we might move manufacturing the real star trek view of the world will be that all manufacturing is done away from earth and if you think about that a lot of the technology that the mining industry has developed working in remote areas having to communicate long distances from remote sites etc it all ties into that a lot of this technology could be adapted for what's going to happen in the next phase, like not terrestrially, more like you know, out of space.
1: You're absolutely right. And if we didn't have that curiosity, all of us we would still be living in caves. We wouldn't go and explore further out because that we were safe in caves. That's fine. And mining, particularly given that the exploration has this type of audience, this podcast has this type of audience, I think the audience will probably already know that Mining in on the Moon and in Mars is not just a thought. There are people in the planning in that for us. That in fact, we will have a workshop with NASA people around that mm-hmm. in two weeks' time, in the middle of February. Mm-hmm. And the Artemis program that the United States has, mm-hmm. go, revisiting the Moon, is not a holiday. They are going there with the purpose of extraction of precious material, but most importantly, water. Because water exists on the moon, on the poles. And yes, you need to extract it, but once they do, and once you have water, you then have fuel, you have oxygen to breathe, you can begin sustained sustain to? life, which becomes a great staging point for the next discovery and, and journey. To Mars and whatever else in many many years from now. So for us and for most people, most of people understand, really understand that humans are geared to be explorers and therefore I think once you sit down and think about it there is not only the inspirational and that satisfying your our own curiosity as a species element, but there's actually a big economic argument for us.
0: Yeah, that's right. And it's also like back to kind of the concept that Elon Musk and others have talked about is that yeah, you know, it's also future-proofing ourselves as a species as well. We are our own worst enemy, so we should probably have a few other places that we have so then we don't completely hedge our bets on one thing.
1: Well, not only that, not only as a Noah's Ark, if you like, not only that, but also most scientists now agree that mars was in it was a little bit like earth why did it turn hostile let's learn from that because then we can say hey that might happen to us and perhaps prevent it
0: you mentioned this and i think it's a really worthwhile point mentioning is that for some people it may seem like this really science fiction fairy tale that we want to go into space and but maybe in Australia, we don't have that footprint yet, and you guys are working on that. But if you look in other parts of the world, there is a quite a significant footprint of people and resources and companies trying to address these problems about how do we go off this planet and how do we find resources and utilize them, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Of course. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So you talked about building this ecosystem here. Do you have a recognition that you might not get things right as you go along this process as well? Uh,
1: absolutely. I wake up every morning saying, how can I beat yesterday? <laughs> of course, I think there's only one mistake about making a mistake, in my view, and that is not learning from it. There's no way that I have a clear path of what's going to happen bit of the life of the CRC. But I know I'm going the right direction and I have a good board and fantastic team that helps me and our partners that helps me go in that direction. In the same way as a jet airliner doesn't quite know the exact path between city A and city B. They head that way and then of course the GPS guides them a bit, but they keep adapting as they go, right? They keep adjusting height and and so on. We'll be doing the same thing. Will we get it right? Well, hopefully we will will we add all the value that we d- that we say? Well, we hope to add more value than we say, but we don't know that. A lot of those are unknowns. Our mind is open and open to learning, not only learning from ourselves, but learning from others as well.
0: So you're more concerned about the trend or the direction rather than the exact goalposts hitting them all along the way? Uh,
1: we have goalposts and now my board will define those precisely. And of course, our, our stakeholders, the government and so on, have already given us what we must achieve, down to the number of PhD students, for instance. So we do know the targets. They say plans are useless, planning is essential, right? We want to make sure we don't know what opportunity or what barrier will come in two years' time. Also, we don't know what, and we will keep a close eye on what everyone else is doing. We're not going to try and develop technology that tomorrow not today because i can't get it but tomorrow i can get it from the shelf i can buy it if the technology is already if the problem is already solved by someone else we will collaborate all right or buy it from them it's not a, it's not research for us so we will always be adapting our research to keep adding value to creating knowledge because by definition research is not a certain thing You're searching again to find something. You may or may not succeed. So there'll be plenty of cul-de-sacs on the way.
0: Is there some things that are out of bounds of CRC? Is there something that you've been told you cannot do, cannot touch?
1: Not formally, but a foolish thing to do is to say yes to everything. We want to focus. We want to focus. We want to know what we're going to do and have that approved by the people that govern us. Uh, the stakeholders, the government, and so on. So we, n- we want to know the destination and then focus on that. If some opportunity came that would help that goal, we will seize it. But we're not going to be running around changing our minds because the next fad came or whatever. Even they work on emergency management, for instance. Yeah, but some people might think, well, actually, yeah, of course, bushfires now, why not go for that? But we actually thought of that even in our application. You know, it was about emergency management, about uh, water monitoring and so on. Because they are grand challenges for our country. And we want to contribute in solving that, in meeting those challenges.
0: So was there a particular reason, I mean we're sitting in Adelaide talking to you, is there a particular reason why South Australia was better than other places for the CSC?
1: I'm not sure if the word better is valid here. I think that journeys start with someone or some people somewhere. It so happened that the journey started by the University of South Australia and Nova Systems in Adelaide. Why in Adelaide? Well, we were there. What was the trigger? The trigger was that there was a group of people that believed passionately about having a space agency and space in Australia in general. And they were great and capable enough to bring a huge conference called the International Astronomical Congress here to Adelaide in 2017 and that then brought up a lot of people to say yes we could do more things than just have bring here the astronaut the IAC as we call it mm-hmm. so that was the trigger but actually the thinking of my colleagues i wasn't part of the the picture then very insightful colleagues that i have who are part of the CSA have were thinking about this long before the IAC. And by the way, there was actually even a false start many years ago, and the government had the space office, I think it was called. So it's not the first time. But this time has been highly successful and timely because the opportunity has changed. The global space industry is, will soon be $1 trillion dollars. And we are only 0.8 of that. But we are at 2%, I think it is, of the global GDP. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make sense. We normally better. We normally punch above our weight in sport in particular, but in many other areas, in mining as well. We punch well above our weight. Why are we so low in that? We're going to change that. So there was, the, It wasn't. it was a timing as well. It was a passion by my colleagues, and it was also a timing issue
0: The timing is a really important one. I think it helps like, you know, Donald Trump talking about the Space Force and all of these type of things. It's definitely front of mind, you know, SpaceX, what they're doing, etc. I think there's a lot more general understanding in community now. And also I think the point that you made about how some of these big things start off with some really small stuff, as part of the thing you look back at how Silicon Valley started, and it really started with something like six or eight people meeting weekly, talking about what they wanted to do. And then, you know, a few parties came in, you know, like Stanford University Engineering yeah. Department came in, and all of a sudden it's ballooned into this yeah. global industry that is arguably the most dominant one that we have.
1: Yeah, and that's an inspirational message for all of us, and particularly for the young, to think big, to think that they, but take small steps, <laughs> yeah. right? Think big, but take more, small steps, and don't, don't feel that you don't have the confidence or the ability to do it. Yeah. Have a go. Well, that's an Australian thing. Have a go. Let's have a go. And you never know where it leads to. Yeah.
0: I think sometimes it's really good to remember that the best way of eating a whale is like one bite at a time, right? Exactly. Sometimes something small can become something big. That's it. So we're getting towards the end of our interview. So one of the questions I guess I'm interested personally asking you is why were you so interested in heading up the CRC?
1: It was... Almost accidental, as many things are. Yeah,
0: some of the best things in life tend to be accidental. So,
1: Yeah, I think on a personal level, I was, a, as I said, a head of the School of uh, IT and Mathematics at the University of South Australia. The opportunity came, my colleagues approached me, in fact, because I had changed the role. The Vice-Chancellor had given me a role which looked at strategic partnerships and in industry, was at the Dean for Industry and Enterprise as the formal title, but actually looking at strategic partnerships of the university, big projects, and I thought this would be a big project. So I talked it over with my boss, and we both agreed, and the vice chancellor supported it wholeheartedly and invested in it, and we took the steps. So I was there, but I was also passionate, as I always am, for collaboration. I'm very passionate for collaboration uh, but particularly between universities and industry, because unfortunately Australia is among the bottom in the OECD list of all countries in collaboration between universities and industry. And I was always, perhaps it's because I was in industry a long time ago, and I became an academic, and I saw the opportunities to bridge the two cultures together essentially so i was always passionate about major initiatives of collaboration and this came along and i seized it
0: having dug into your background for this interview i think you know you are the perfect type of person in that sense because you have the industry perspective as well as the academic perspective and you've obviously worked with governments as well so you know like what push and pull they have as well And I think it's, like you said, the fundamental recognition that industry has a role to play. They're kind of the doers and the feedback collectors. And you have academics who are more the thinkers and the initial testers.
1: And it's a hand-in-hand kind of thing. There is an African proverb that, if I say it right, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I believe that very strongly. And I think this, for me, is a journey that both industry and academia, and very importantly, government as well, need to take together.
0: Yeah, I think that's beautifully said. So we always end our interview with two questions, and we'll slightly adapt them for you. So the first question is, what is something, could be an idea, a concept, a behavior, that you think needs to die in your particular industry, something that you need to get rid of?
1: I think I might have answered that before. I think the idea here in Australia is that academics are great but their feet are too far above the ground and therefore they dismiss them a lot more than other countries do. Uh, I do feel that in Australia we dismiss the research element, we don't value it as much and I think we need to value it more and the academics and the researchers it's not all it's not only academics but the researchers need to earn the trust of industry and understand it understand that it's not only about proposing new ideas but also delivering on what industry imperatives exist and that way then bringing the cultures together
0: perfect so conversely and last question So what is something that you think you should maintain in your industry at all costs, something that you think is fundamental to your DNA that you should never forget?
1: I firmly believe that, and and I've encountered that in my life all the time. Whatever we do, we are now coming towards some really, really big challenges. I'm not talking about water and the other challenges and bushfires, which are big challenges for the nation but even bigger challenges like the environment, like AI. AI is a huge opportunity, but also a challenge. We must make sure that people matter and that we have humanity prevail because technology is advancing exponentially so fast you'll see that what will happen in the next 20 years, you would not even imagine, even today, because it is an exponential growth in that area, we need to ensure that we maintain the human in the loop, if you like. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking very specifically around AI, machine learning, and the robots being able to produce their own robots. And the AI, AI algorithms not necessarily keeping the humanity into the algorithms themselves.
0: Yeah, and I think it's Max Tegmark that has the saying that technology is about helping humanity, not like the other way around.
1: Exactly. We need to educate the technologists because often that's not the first thing they think. In other words, you need to have, if you like, humanity by design, not just, oh, okay, we've done this. Now let's think about privacy. Let's think about ethics. And often they don't, they just... Given the instruction to put ethics into AI, for instance, you should be doing it by design from the start.
0: And I think the challenging part there is that if you value ethics or morality or something else related to humanity before technology, then we might make a decision that some technologies are things that we might not pursue, or we might. Right, and then and that's always a real hard challenge from a technologist. Every path should be explored, but some we might say, you know, maybe that's not the best path for us to explore.
1: Yeah, it's about finding ways to deal with it. Highly unlikely to stop, unless we blow ourselves up and then there's no problem. Uh, Well, big problem. (laughs) When we invented fire, we couldn't stop that. Someone would have invented it somewhere else and burned our house down. But also, fire has given us a lot. Of benefits it's not only burning other people's homes the same with weapons and other things yeah
0: and i think having that discussion i think is a really valid point
1: would be a good podcast possibly not for me for someone more qualified in this area
0: no that's great well thanks a lot for joining us andy that was great no
1: thank you for the opportunity thank you
0: this episode of Exploration Radio was brought to you by Ahmad Saleem and Steve Beresford, produced by Sean Jeffrey, edited by Humayu Meir, and recorded live in Adelaide in early 2020. Exploration Radio is supported by the AIG, the Australian Institute of Geoscientists, the MCA, the Minerals Council of Australia, the Society of Economic Geologists, One-to-One Group, and the Assay, and is an official media partner of the 2022 PDAC Conference. Until next time, let's keep exploring.